Okay, so yesterday, obviously we, we weren't supposed to be here this morning, so when, we, when I got the word that we were canceling, the first phrase that came into my mind was, for such a time as this. That's from Esther, you may know that. So I'm going to try to walk you through Esther. We're taking a pause from Luke. I'm going to try to walk you through Esther very quickly, and as I do, I want you thinking just that phrase, for such a time as this. That's the, the lens that I want you listening to um, this morning, Esther was set it's, uh, in Persia towards the very end. If the Old Testament was laid out chronologically, Esther would be almost at the very, very end, 483 to 473 B.C. That's when Esther took place. Uh, again, it's in the Persian Empire, deals with Jews who are not in Jerusalem. They haven't returned. Here you can see the main characters. I'm going to call that guy Xerxes. I don't know how you say his name. He's the king of Persia, Esther's the queen, Mordecai is Esther's cousin, and then Haman, who's kind of this favored prince, he's the top guy in Persia, he's Xerxes' uh, favored prince. And the main question that the book of Esther answers is, will the Jewish people be destroyed? That's what the whole book's about. If you've never read it, I'd encourage you to. Ten chapters, you can do it in 20 minutes. If you need something to read this week, read Esther. It's a great story. So let me try to give you again this broad 30,000 foot overview. So we have a king. His name is Xerxes. He has this huge banquet. He invites all of the leaders of his kingdom to come. It's a long, it's a big party, multiple. He does something for 180 days where people are kind of getting to move about the palace. And then they have this week long banquet. And he has one for the men in his queen, her name is Vashti, has one for the women. And then at some point over the course of the week, Xerxes says, you know what, I need y'all to see my wife. And so he summons Vashti and says, I want you to come to the men's banquet because I want everybody to know how beautiful you are. And Vashti says, no, which you don't do to a king. You don't say no. And so the king is humiliated in front of his guests. And he asks his advisors, and says, what do we need to do about this? And they say, you can't let this go on. If, if, if other women find out that Vashti said no to you, then they're all going to start saying no to their husbands. We can't have that. So you've got to put her aside. Don't, you don't have to kill her. you just got to put her aside. So the king says, great idea. Vashti will never again see my face. So Vashti is removed. Then you fast forward. That's chapter one. Chapter two is four years into the future. The king's ready for a new wife. And his advisors have this great idea. This is the first version of The Bachelor in the history of the earth. They say, we're going to let us go and find all of the eligible women and we will bring them to you. And then you can pick the one that you like best. And Xerxes says, absolutely, let's do that. So they go out and they look for all the beautiful women in the kingdom and they find one. And her name is Hadassah. And her name, Esther, that's also, that's her, uh, Hadassah is her Jewish name. Uh, her name is Esther, and she's chosen. And she has a cousin named Mordecai who's taking care of her. Esther's parents have died, and Mordecai has been raising her. And Mordecai says to Esther, go, but don't tell them you're a Jew. Keep your identity secret. And Esther says, okay. So she goes to the harem, and she wins favor with the guy who's in charge of the harem. And when you're in the harem, you've got a month to kind of look your best. A month of, I mean a year, excuse me, a year of beauty treatments. So at the end of her year, Esther's number's up. She goes before the king and he likes her the best. He, she wins him over 
And so he says, you're the queen. He has a big banquet for Esther because Esther is now the queen. And then, kind of a side note, towards the end of chapter 2, Mordecai hangs around the city gate. That's where all the business would take place. He seems to be someone of some influence and importance. Not quite sure what, but he's hanging around the city gate, and he overhears two of Xerxes' officers planning to assassinate him. And so he tells, lets Esther know. She's the queen now. He says, hey, Esther, let Xerxes know these two guys are planning on killing him. They look into the plot, and they find out, hey, it's, it's true. So they kill those two guys, and they make a note of it in the king's record book. Mordecai uncovered this plot on this day, saved the king. Chapter 3, bad guy enters into the equation. Haman is an Amalekite. If you look at the history from um, Exodus on, the Amalekites and the Israelites don't like each other at all. When the Israelites are, have crossed the Red Sea, they're worn out, they're ragged, they, they don't have much military experience at all, and they're walking in the desert, and the Amalekites attack them, kind of picking on someone who's weaker. The Israelites win, but at that exchange, God makes a statement and says, we're done with the Amalekites. We're going to wipe them out. And if you read 1 Samuel 15 and 30, there's this, there are these battles between the Amalekites and the Israelites. So you have hundreds and hundreds of years of enmity between these two nations. So Haman is an Amalekite. Just keep that in the back of your mind. He's also the favored, the favored prince. He's the golden boy of the Persian Empire. And everywhere he goes, everybody kneels down. Everybody's afraid of him. Everybody's in awe of him. Everybody pays him respect, and he loves it. He's got a big ego, and he loves that. Except Mordecai won't honor him. Mordecai doesn't stand up. Mordecai doesn't kneel down. Mordecai's not afraid of him. Mordecai doesn't show him any respect. And it gets under Haman's skin day after day, week after week. And eventually he says, I'm going to kill Mordecai. And then he finds out Mordecai's a Jew. And he says, better yet, I'm going to wipe them all out. I'm going to take out his entire race. And so he goes to the king and he spins this story and says, there are these people scattered throughout your kingdom and they're different, which is true. They have different customs. That's true. They have different laws. That's true. They don't obey the king. That's not true. These guys are dangerous. It would be better for you to get rid of them. And what I'll do is I'll put 375 tons of silver into the treasury for you. I'll do that so we can make this thing happen. The king says, keep your money, do whatever you want. So they issue an edict. And in Persia, once the king makes an edict, it can't be revoked. Even the king can't revoke it. It's It's a done deal. And in this edict, it says, so this is January 13th on our calendar. Uh, Haman is in front of Xerxes. It says on December 13th, so all the way at the end of the year, you can why all the Jews are going to be destroyed and killed and annihilated. I'm not sure why they needed all three of those, but that's what he said. Destroyed, killed, and annihilated. Men, women, children on December 13th of this year. Chapter 4, Mordecai hears about this. He puts on his funeral clothes. He's weeping and wailing in front of the city gates. Esther sees it, sends somebody out to say, Mordecai, what, what's going on? And he says, haven't you heard? This is what Haman is doing to us. He sold us out. He's planning on killing us, destroying us, annihilating us on December 13th. Here's a copy of the order. And I need you to do something about it. That's what Mordecai says. You've got to do something about it. Esther says, I can't. There's this rule in the palace. If you approach the king 
without him first asking for you to come, he kills you. It's a way of protecting him from being assassinated. You can't have nobody gets to drop in on the king. If he calls for you, you can come. But if you just pop in, unless he extends his scepter to you, you get killed. And he hadn't called for me in a month. I don't know what I can do about this. And then this is kind of the classic passage in Esther. Mordecai's response to her, verse 12, I'll read this, it'll be on the screen. Don't think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. There's that key phrase. What Mordecai is saying is, who, don't you think maybe the reason you're here is in order to help us with this. Esther's convinced and she says, all right, I'll do something. You and all the rest of the Jews, y'all fast. Don't eat, don't drink for three days. I'll approach the king. If I die, I die. Chapter 5, she approaches the king. He holds out his scepter to us. That doesn't seem like a big deal. Huge risk Esther is taking there, taking her life into her hands. He extends the scepter, says, what do you want? I'll give you whatever you want. And she says, all I want is for you and Haman to come to a a banquet I'm preparing tomorrow. I'll let you know my question then, but for right now, would you and Haman just come to this banquet? King says, absolutely. Haman, of course, that just feeds his ego. He knew he was the king's favorite, and now he's saying, and and I'm Esther's too. The king and the queen both like me. Nobody else is getting invited to this banquet but me. So he's skipping out of the palace on cloud nine, and who does he run into? Mordecai. And what does Mordecai do? Nothing. Doesn't stand up, doesn't bow down, doesn't give him any honor. Ticks him off. He gets home, and he starts griping to his wife and to his friends. I can't even enjoy going to this banquet because of Mordecai. And what they say is, here's a great idea. Why don't you build a pole 75 feet tall and then impale Mordecai on it? Let's do that. And Haman says, all right, that's what we'll do. So here's chapter 6. This is the pivotal chapter in the whole book. I'm going to read it to you. It'll be on the screen. So that night, so that night, that's this is Esther's invited them to the banquet. For the next day, and Haman has built this pole and has decided, I'm going to impale Mordecai on it. So that night, the king could not sleep. So the king orders the book of the chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found and recorded there that Mordecai had exposed these two, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate the king. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him. The king said, who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendant said, Haman's in the court. Bring him in. When Haman entered, the king asked what should be done for the man the king delights to honor. Now, Haman thought, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? Nobody. So he answered the king. For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman, get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested For Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. 
Don't neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai, led them, excuse me, led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief. He told his wife and all his friends everything that happened. And then his wife, in the most supportive way, says, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. You get the picture there. Everything just flips upside down for Haman. His, this guy, his adversary, this irritant in his life, Mordecai, he's now had to publicly say, this is the guy that the king wants to honor. Common that uh, when, when you would know when a banquet was going to occur the day, but you wouldn't know exactly when because it, it depended on when the food was ready. And so you would send people out, servants out to say the food is ready. So as soon as his wife in her most supportive way says you're going to come to ruin, these eunuchs come and say, hey, the food's ready. So he's still reeling. And he goes to this banquet in chapter 7. It's just him and the king and the queen. And the king says, Esther, what do you want? I'll give you anything you want. And she says, all I want is to live. Me and my people, that's it. We've been sold out and all we want is to live. And the king is hot. And he says, who's done this? And she looks at him and says, that vile man, Haman. The king is so mad, he gets up and storms out. Haman knows he's done at that point. The way they would take banquets is you would be reclining, kind of laying on your side. And so Haman kind of falls towards Esther to beg for mercy. And as he's doing that, the king comes back in and says, first you try to kill her and her people, and now you're molesting her here during this banquet. And then at the same time, one of the servants comes in and says, Haman built this pole 75 feet high, and he wanted to impale Mordecai, who saved your life, on it. And the king says, why don't we throw him on it instead? And that's what they do. They impale Haman. That's in chapter 7. And then 8, 9, and 10, um, is, it wraps up. It's really the, a long conclusion to the story. Mordecai is honored moving forward. Uh, there's a new edict written because you can't um, undo an old one that says the Jews can defend themselves on December 13th when they're attacked. They do defend themselves. They defeat their enemies. Uh, there's a Jewish holiday established called Purim, and uh, that's how Esther ends. Again, it's a great story. I'd encourage you to read it. I just gave you the very high-level version. You miss a lot of the nuance. Key phrase for us. But who knows that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this? So what I want you to do is take out those two words, royal position, and I want you to insert your position, whatever that is. You can think of the different roles that you play at work, at home, and in the community. Who knows but that you have come to your fill-in-the-blank, your job as an engineer, homeschooling your kids, whatever it is, that new job for you, new apartment for you, school board, Marietta school board, whatever your thing is, who knows that you have come to that position for such a time as this, we talked last week about this idea of living like missionaries. We said that God wants all of us to live with this sense of sentness. 
the biggest difference between what we think of a stereotypical missionary, God calls somebody to another geographic location, and then that person or that family moves to that geographic location with an intention to do, quote, kingdom work in that place. That's what we think of when we think of stereotypical missionaries. Someone's moving from Marietta, Cobb County, so across the ocean to another location, And their days are going to be spent intentionally doing whatever we consider kingdom work. Church planting, evangelism, relief, development, discipleship, that type of thing. That's what they're going to be doing in this location. When we think missionary, that's what most of us uh, see in our mind. That's what we conceive of. The biggest difference between that stereotypical picture in you and me, where we are in Marietta and Cobb County, it's just, it's the sense of sentness. Most of us don't live regularly with the idea or the conviction that God has sent us to that position. We don't assume that we, that where we are is because God has placed us there. Whatever those roles or that location happens to be. And therefore, because we don't assume God has placed us there, we don't engage with very much intentionality. We just do whatever's in front of us. We just do our job. We just raise our kids or we just interact with our neighbors, whatever that is. But there's not this sense behind us that says, but who knows that God has put me on this street for such a time as this. But who knows that God has put me in this office for such a time as this. But who knows that God has put me in the life of this person for such a time as this. On my best days, I ask that question and I have about four of them a year. That's it. And the rest of the time, I'm just kind of doing what's in front of me. I don't regularly say, but who knows that God has put me in this role for such a time as this, or that God has put our church on this corner for such a time as this. If you and I can begin to approach our regular lives from that, this perspective, and we'll talk about it a little bit more in a second, we're going to call it a providential perspective. If we can approach our lives providentially, It's not an accident that I am who I am, where I am now, but all of those things have been orchestrated by the Lord. If I can approach my life providentially, then that helps me begin to live my life like a missionary. I can say, but who knows? Who knows that I'm not in this relationship, in this circumstance, in this role for such a time as this. God, what do you want to do? That's the follow-up question. So if the first question is, but who knows, the second question is, what am I supposed to do about that? Mordecai sees life providentially. Providence is not a word that you'll find in the Bible. It's not in the Old Testament. You won't see it used of God in the New Testament. But it is a biblical doctrine. I think the easiest way to understand it is providence is the understanding that God works through history or in history, however you want to say that, to accomplish his purposes. That's the big picture of what providence means. That God's at work in our world in our lives, to accomplish his purposes. The classic verse on providence is Romans 8.28. We sang a song that had that as the tagline. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. There's, my theology, God does not cause everything. God is not in control of everything. But God is supervising or superintending everything. And he... The word in my mind is he shepherds. He shepherds all of these choices and he shepherds all of these circumstances to ultimately get where he wants to go. It's amazing to think about that he can work through the free choices 
of people like us. He can even use the work of the enemy who's opposed to everything he wants to do to accomplish his purposes. His power and his wisdom to me, it's, it's astounding to think of the way he can work in history to ultimately accomplish what he wants to do. That doesn't mean that everything in my theology, everything that happens is not the will of God. There are things that happen outside of his will. But he's able to use those things to still accomplish his purposes. He works them all together. He works all of those things together. Real quick, I want you to look. Here's some providence in Esther, some examples that kind of set up that pivotal chapter 6. Vashti happens to refuse the king. The advisors happen to open up the search for a new queen. Esther happens to get selected. She happens to win the favor of Xerxes. And uh, she, excuse me, that last, she happens to keep her identity a secret. Also, another one there is Mordecai happens to overhear about this plot. He happens to be in the right place at the right time. All of those things just happen. The God never appears in Esther. If you read the whole book, you'll never see the name of God. There's very little spiritual activity. There's a fast that's called, and that's the most spiritual activity that occurs. We don't even see anybody praying in Esther. But God's fingerprints are all over everything that happens. All of these things that could appear coincidental, God is using those things to ultimately shape history. Let's see, in chapter 6, our pivotal chapter, Xerxes can't sleep on this particular night. He asks that his annals be read to him. The eunuchs happen to pick a section that's five years old. Something that happened five years in the past. They just happen to go there and read about Mordecai. It just so happens that five years ago they didn't honor Mordecai. Who knows why? Who knows why they didn't take time at that point to do something nice for him? But they didn't. And so the king is going, hey, we should do something for this guy. Haman happens to enter the palace at the same time the king is having this conversation with his attendants, Haman assumes that the king is talking about him. All of these things that lead to Mordecai being lifted up and Haman being brought low, they're all they're coincidences, if you want to see them that way. Some people, I heard somebody say one time, a coincidence is a, is a miracle where God chooses to remain anonymous. And some of that is true here. We see God's fingerprints, even though God doesn't directly enter the picture. Look at this. I thought this was interesting to me. You probably can find other things, but if you look at what God uses, we say God causes all things to work together. These are the things that some of the things that God uses to accomplish his purposes. I don't know why Vashti said no. I don't know if it was her pride or her dignity, but either way, God used it. Esther's beauty, Mordecai's courage, Haman's pride, the murderous intent of two officers, bad advice from Haman's family and friends. Out of everyone on this list, only Mordecai and Esther are Jews. The rest of them are not. So God is working and using the choices of people who don't even acknowledge him as God to ultimately save his people. That's what the whole thing's about. Remember the main question. Will the Jews be saved or will the Jews be destroyed? He's preserving and protecting his people through Esther, through a woman in Jewish society. Women had no power and no position. But God is using this woman who he's placed as queen in a pagan empire to protect his people. It's amazing if you read the story. That's the providential hand of God. He's at work over the course of a decade. Esther takes place over ten years. It sounds like it's boom, 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 but it's actually over the course of a decade from when Vashti is deposed to when Esther or excuse me, to when the Jews are saved. It's ten year period. 
And God's at work over the course of that decade to preserve and to protect his people. I don't know if you look at your life that way or not. Again, on my best day, I do. But I don't, most of the time, I don't. We, I run too fast. I just, I don't. I don't have that sense of sentness on a regular basis. And some of that's because I'm, I'm looking for some kind of warm and fuzzy feeling and it's not there all the time. Sometimes it's just this recognition. Mordecai saying to Esther, wake up, cousin. Look, at, look where you are. The reason you are where you are is so you can help your people in this moment. Now, if you don't help them, God's going to work through somebody else, but he puts you there to do this. What would it look like for you to begin to say to the Lord, why am I here? What, 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 am I in this position because you placed me here? What if you even go, took a step farther and just assumed? God moves people around. Right now we're talking about, on stay, we're talking about staying put. What if you just assumed that you are where you are because God placed you there? And you can look back and say, I never prayed about that. Don't worry about it. I never asked God what he wanted me to do. Don't worry about it. I never got wise counsel. Don't worry about it. I wasn't even a Christian when I... Don't worry about that. The providential hand of God, he can work through any number of things. He can cause all of those things. He can shepherd all of those things to his end. So just assume... For the rest of this month, we'll say as an experiment, just assume for the rest of July that you are where you are because God has placed you there. And then begin to say, what for? Why? Why am I here? Why am I in this cubicle? Why am I on this job? Why did I win this work? Why am I in this relationship? Why are they my next door neighbors? Those types of things. Begin to ask. And just see, there, might, there most likely won't be something in every one of those situations over the course of the next month. But I can just about guarantee there will be something in one of them. And if you begin to, to approach all of those circumstances, all of your roles from the perspective of a missionary, God sent me here. If you came up here and we prayed for you and you went to Africa because you said God called me to Kenya, you would live your days there with intentionality. You would say, I know I'm here because God sent me here. And it would put a bit of purpose to even the trivialities and the mundane tasks that you did Monday through Friday. And I'm asking you to view your life in Marietta and Cobb County the same way. This is Jeremiah 25. It's one of our core verses. It's a church. This is written to exiles. That's us. This is exiles in a pagan empire. We talked about last week, we're a post-Christian society. We're on, the, we're on the margins. We're on the fringe. And here's how God says you should handle that. Build houses. Settle down. Plant gardens. Eat what they produce. Marry. Have children. Find wives for your children so that they can have children. Increase there. Do not de- decrease. Here's a key idea for us. Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you will prosper. So if the question is, God, why am I here? Here's your big answer. I'm here to seek the welfare of this place. Then you've got to dig a little deeper and say, what does that look like? But that's what he wants for you. That's what he's saying. You're in exile. It's not your home, but here's how I want you to act. Even as a stranger and a foreigner in exile in this country, I want you to seek the welfare of that place. As it prospers, so will you. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you've sent us. And that's not 
Intellectually, it's easy to grasp. I do believe it's difficult to orient our life that way because most of us who've been raised in a church have spent our whole life seeing missionaries as people who leave from here and go to there. And it's not us. Maybe we write checks. But we're not ones who are sent into the world with any particular purpose. And God, I pray for each of us now that you would remind us of our identity as sons and daughters. You would remind us of the invitation to get involved in the family business of making all things new. Seeking the welfare of the places where you've put us. God, I pray for those particularly who are in circumstances. They maybe work in fields or in offices and they would say, there's no trace of God here. He's been regulated out of this thing. God, would you show them what does it look like to live as a missionary? Would you remind them for such a time as this, who knows, but for such a time as this, you've been put in that role. You've been put in that spot. There's a reason that person is reporting to you. There's a reason you're reporting to that person. God, would you give us providential glasses through which to look at life? To begin to say, even if we're asking you to change our circumstances, to say in the midst of them, until they change, my assumption is God has me here. So he either wants to do something in me or he wants to do something through me. But either way, I'm saying, God, you've got me here. Why? God, I pray that you would give us faith like Mordecai to see life providentially. The whole deck was stacked against him. There's an edict that had been written that the Jews were to be destroyed and it was an edict that couldn't be called back. The guy who had written it was number one. He was the golden boy in the empire. His only connection to the king, his cousin, hadn't been asked in for 30 days. And yet he still had faith that you would save and deliver. God, would you give us that kind of faith? Even when the odds look insurmountable to say... You're at work. You want to bring transformation. You want to make all things new. And then like Esther, I pray that we would you give us courage to say, all right, I'll give it a shot. I don't know, I don't know how it's going to turn out. But I'll take the risk. God, I pray particularly for people here today who are at a pivot point. When I say, who knows, for such a time as this, there's a particular circumstance that's flashing through their mind. And they're wondering, what am I supposed to do in this relationship, in this circumstance? Again, God, I pray for faith and for courage for them. God, I pray for those of us who just kind of stumble or run through our day without any sense of intentionality. Not recognizing our sentness. 
Would you put that deep within our hearts? Again, give us those providential glasses, I pray. In Jesus' name. We've got a couple of minutes. Um, Do we have any ministry teams? Anybody? Yeah, perfect. If you're on the ministry team, if you come forward, thank y'all for... I know y'all weren't supposed to be on today. We'll pray with you about anything at all that you have going on. About a couple of things. Particularly, if you know you're at a pivot point, when I say for such a time as this, you've got something in your head, we want to pray with you about that pivot point. And also... If you're still, this whole idea of being sent, if you're going, that doesn't connect to me, doesn't resonate at all. We just want to pray with you that God would uh, confirm that in your heart, that he would confirm that he's placed you in the places uh, where you are. So you guys can stand, come forward as you will, and Bo will dismiss us after this song.